This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to the program today. Today I'd like to open the program with a comment by Philip Morris, the author of the article on Kim Noor Tate. He writes, Instead of depending on her teacher for motivation, Kim has taken responsibility for developing her own practice. What I have is a resource in my life, Kim says. It is there for me and it shows me the way to my personal sense of grace and clarity. And Philip Morris goes on, Isn't this really what you want as well? Your own sense of grace and clarity? How could it possibly be achieved except through a struggle of hope and doubt, intention and failure? One day you simply arrive, not at some special place, but the most ordinary of places, your regular up and down, always busy life, just as it is. But now it's your own for the very first time. There is within you a place of quiet and surrender, a place from which you get up in the morning and without the need of inspiration or optimism, Find your way to the cushion or the mat and offer yourself just as you are, sleepy, fresh, grumpy or cheerful, to the moment as it arises. And in that moment you know that you're alive and at peace, for you're not separate from all else. The great Indian teacher Jiddu Krishnamurti, in his book The First and Last Freedom, put it like this, I do not know if any of you have had a moment of creativity. I'm not talking of putting some vision into action, I mean that moment of creation when there's no recognition. At that moment, there is that extraordinary state in which the me, as an activity through recognition, has ceased. If we are aware, we shall see that in this state there's no experiencer who remembers, translates, recognizes, and then identifies. There's no thought process, which is of time. And in that state of creation, of creativity of the new, which is timeless, there is no action of the me at all. He says that to achieve this state of creation, we have to become fully aware of the whole process of self-centered activity. He says, To understand what this self-centered activity is, one must obviously examine it, look at it, be aware of the entire process. If one can be aware of it, then there is the possibility of its dissolution. But to be aware of it requires a certain understanding, a certain intention to face the thing as it is, and not to interpret, not to modify, not to condemn it. We have to be aware of what we are doing, of all the activity which springs from that self-centered state. We must be conscious of it. One of our primary difficulties is that the moment we are conscious of that activity, we want to shape it, we want to control it, we want to condemn it, or we want to modify it. So we are seldom able to look at it directly. When we do, very few of us are capable of knowing what to do. 
We realize that self-centered activities are detrimental or destructive and that every form of identification, such as with a country, with a particular group, with a particular desire, the research for a result here or hereafter, the glorification of an idea, the pursuit of an example, the pursuit of virtue and so on, is essentially the activity of a self-centered person. All our relationships with nature, with people, with ideas, are the outcome of that activity. Knowing all this, what is one to do? All such activity must voluntarily come to an end, not self-imposed, not influenced, not guided. Most of us are aware that this self-centered activity creates mischief and chaos, but we are only aware of it in certain directions. Either we observe it in others and are ignorant of our own activities, or being aware in relationship with others of our own self-centered activity, we want to transform, we want to find a substitute, we want to go beyond. Before we can deal with it, we must know how this process comes into being, must we not? In order to understand something, we must be capable of looking at it, and to look at it, we must know its various activities at different levels, conscious as well as unconscious, the conscious directives and also the self-centered movements of our unconscious motives and intentions. I am only conscious of this activity of the me when I am opposing, when consciousness is thwarted, when the me is desirous of achieving a result, am I not? Or I am conscious of that center when pleasure comes to an end and I want to have more of it. Then there is resistance and a purpose of shaping of the mind to a particular end which will give me a delight, a satisfaction. I am aware of myself and my activities when I am pursuing virtue consciously. Surely a man who pursues virtue consciously is unvirtuous. Humility cannot be pursued, and that is the beauty of humility. This is interesting because it suggests we cannot ac actually achieve anything meaningful through conscious Dharma practice, that is by forcing ourselves into transformation. We practice Dharma to gain understanding and knowledge of our motivations, both conscious and unconscious. But from his point of view, we can only attain transformation when through understanding and knowing we lose the sense of time and the sense of I that is the practitioner. However, before we go any further, now let's take a minute to set our motivation for the program as we usually do. We are discussing the way to develop the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment to benefit all living beings. So that provides a very pertinent motivation for us. May this program become the cause for me to attain enlightenment, which is the best state to be in to be able to help all others. But if you can't make that your motivation, please at least direct this program to your own liberation from suffering and dissatisfaction. Thank you. Now to continue. I'm not pushing Krishnamurti as a kind of unrecognized great Buddhist sage, but I do think he has a sound experiential grasp of what he's talking about, even though it may be a bit beyond our level of practice and even understanding. So let's just leave our textual discussion for a while and take a detour, but not too much of a one, into what Mr. Krishnamurti has to say. This self-centered process is the result of time, is it not? he asks. 
So long as this center of activity exists in any direction, conscious or unconscious, there is the movement of time, and I am conscious of the past and the present in conjunction with the future. The self-centered activity of the me is a time process. It is memory that gives continuity to the activity of the center, which is the me. If you watch yourself and are aware of this center of activity, you will see that it is only the process of time, of memory, of experiencing and translating every experience according to a memory. You will also see that self-activity is recognition, which is also the process of the mind. Can the mind be free from all this? It may be possible at rare moments. It may happen to most of us when we do an unconscious, unintentional, unpurposive act. But is it possible for the mind ever to be completely free from self-centered activity? That's a very important question to put to ourselves. Because in the very putting of it, you will find the answer. If you are aware of the total process of this self-centered activity, fully cognizant of its activities at different levels of your consciousness, then surely you have to ask yourselves if it is possible for that activity to come to an end. Is it possible not to think in terms of time, not to think in terms of what I shall be, what I have been, what I am? For from such thought the whole process of self-centered activity begins. There also begins the determination to become, the determination to choose and to avoid, which are all a process of time. We see in that process infinite mischief, misery, confusion, distortion, deterioration. Surely the process of time is not revolutionary. In the process of time there is no transformation. There is only a continuity and no ending. There is nothing but recognition. It is only when you have complete cessation of the time process, of the activity of the self, that there is a revolution, a transformation, the coming into being of the new. Being aware of this whole total process of the me in its activity, what is the mind to do? It is only with renewal, it is only with revolution, not through evolution, not through the me becoming, but through the me completely coming to an end, that there is the new. The time process cannot bring the new. Time is not the way of creation. He then says that our question has to be whether the mind can remain indefinitely in that timeless state of no experiencer who remembers, translates, recognizes and then identifies, the state in which there is no thought process. Can we remain in that state without regard to time, he asks. He claims it is important that we investigate and discover if we can because it is the door to love. Everything else is just activity of the self. Where there is action of the self, there is no love, he says. Love is not of time. You cannot practice love. If you do, then it is a self-conscious activity of the me, which hopes through loving to gain a result. Love is not of time. You cannot come upon it through any conscious effort, through any discipline, through identification, which is all the process of time. The mind, knowing only the process of time, cannot recognize love. Love is the only thing that is eternally new. Since most of us have cultiva cultivated the mind, which is the result of time, we don't, do not know what love is. We talk about love. We say we love people, that we love our children, 
our wife, our neighbor, that we love nature. But the moment we are conscious that we love, self-activity has come into being. Therefore, it ceases to be love. This total process of the mind is to be understood only through relationship. Relationship with nature, with people, with our own projections, with everything about us. Life is nothing but relationship. Though we may attempt to isolate ourselves from relationship, we cannot exist without it. Though relationship is painful, we cannot run away by means of isolation, by by becoming a hermit and so on. All these methods are indications of the activity of the self. Seeing this whole picture, being aware of the whole process of time as consciousness, without any choice, without any determined purpose of intention, without the desire for any result, you will see that this process of time comes to an end voluntarily, not induced, not as a result of desire. It is only when that process comes to an end that love is, which is eternally new. We do not have to seek truth. Truth is not something far away. It is the truth about the mind, truth about its activities from moment to moment. If we are aware of this moment to moment of truth, of this whole process of time, that awareness releases consciousness or the energy which is intelligence, love. So long as the mind uses consciousness as self-activity, time comes into being with all its miseries, with all its conflicts, with all its mischief, its purpose of deceptions, and it is only when the mind, understanding this total process, ceases that love can be. Krishnamurti seems to suggest our main practice should be mindfulness, that awareness of each moment as it reveals itself. Where does that leave the teachings then? I don't believe that mere mindfulness without knowledge and understanding will suffice. The teachings tell us what we are looking for and at what even though ultimately nobody is looking at anything. They tell us something about how to view our experience, for otherwise, how do we even start? So we need to know the disadvantages of the self-centered mind and apply that knowledge in our observation of it, even though that may in itself be a self-centered activity. Gaining insight merely through mindfulness is beyond most of us, so we need to be pointed in the right direction. Even Krishnamurti recognizes this as he says that even though we may become aware of our self-centered activities, most of us won't know what to do with them. And if we take what he says is true, most of our activities, even in practice, will be self-centered. Nevertheless, we have to carry on regardless until we have the capacity to each moment be, as he says, aware of the total process of time as consciousness, without any choice without any determined purpose of intention, without the desire for any result. Then we can say we are really practicing the Dharma without the self-centered mind. Now, looking back to where we were before Judo Krishnamurti came on the scene, remember that we are discussing the ways to meditate to develop bodhicitta. We've already gone through the six cause and one effect method and have been looking at the first part of the method equalizing and exchanging self for others. If you were with us in previous programs, you might remember that we went through nine points, equalizing ourselves with others. They were, all beings are same in wanting happiness and not wanting suffering. No being's happiness is more important than any others. No being's relief from suffering is more important than any others. 
All beings having been kind to us, we should try to help them in return. Any being has helped us much more than harmed us. Being bound to die, we have no reason to hold grudges. Friend, enemy, stranger, oneself and others are all not inherently existent. If friend, enemy, stranger, self and others were inherently existent, they would never change. The distinction of self and other doesn't inherently exist because self and other is dependent on a viewpoint. Once having gained some understanding of these nine points, we went on to the second part of the method, exchanging self for others. And this has four sections. Seeing the disadvantages of self-cherishing, seeing the advantages of cherishing others, exchanging self for others, and taking and giving. We're on discovering the disadvantages of self-cherishing, the self-cherishing mind, and in line with Buddhism's love of lists, we've gone through five. Self-cherishing is the driver of all our negative emotions. Self-cherishing compels us to harm others, in the process, harming ourselves even more. It makes us overly sensitive, and it constantly makes us defensive. And the fifth one is that the self-centered mind is an obstacle to our Dharma practice. Tupton Chodron says that when we have a very clear idea about these disadvantages of the self-centered mind, we will truly identify it as our enemy. She says that when going through some misery, we can blame the self-centered mind and say, it's your fault, all the misery goes to you, buddy. She says, We give all of our problems, all of our misery to our self-centeredness and we rejoice because our enemy the self-centeredness is suffering. It's a really neat meditation when you separate yourself out from your self-centeredness. The self-centeredness is our enemy. I'm having some hindrances and things aren't going the way I want. It seems people are piling problems up on me. I'm miserable. So I take all that misery and I give it to the self-centeredness and I say, Here, you experience it because you created it. In fact, I can say other people please harm me even more because when you harm me, I'm going to give it to my self-centeredness and it will harm her. She's my real enemy, so let's destroy her or him. It's a really effective way of thinking. When you do this, it makes your mind stronger and able to bear hardship. For example, I do this practice when people talk badly about me behind my back. Can you imagine the nerve they have, talking badly about me, sweet, angelic, good intention, almost perfect me? You know, it's terrible that they would even do such a thing, talk behind my back. How is that possible? The universe should not allow people to talk badly about me behind my back. This is totally unacceptable, and it's unfair, and I'm taking it to the Supreme Court. Then we just get so stuck in this kind of story. Then I realize the cause of other people talking badly about me behind my back is my own self-centeredness. I'll give all this turmoil to my own self-centeredness and use it to harm that, because that's what's harming me. Actually, I can then think that it's kind of good to get criticized behind my back, because it destroys that self-centeredness. When I turn the pain on the self-centeredness, it destroys it. It's good I get criticized. Actually, I can think, criticize me more. She admits that in her case, she's only talking about using it as a meditation technique and hasn't able to yet to really mean it. However, we should get to the point of saying it and really meaning it. She continues, You see, if you are really practicing the Mahayana path 
with bodhicitta, when we get criticized, then we're very happy. When we have suffering, we're very happy. When things don't go our way, we're very happy because we give all the hindrances to our happiness, to the self-centeredness. It's very, very helpful to contemplate all these disadvantages of self-centeredness. If you think about this in depth and you really look at your life in terms of this, it will help you to resolve a lot of psychological issues and make your mind much stronger. And then as an example, she uses her relationship with her parents. Now I think we can all relate to such an example because so many of us Westerners have issues with our parents. She says, I spent a great deal of time as a young person thinking that my parents didn't accept me as I was. They wanted me to be somebody different. Did anybody else have that going on in their mind? Why can't people accept me the way I am? Why is it that they always seem to want me to be something that I'm not? I spent a lot of time being really upset that they didn't accept me the way I was. Then, one day when I was meditating, I realized that by my saying that, I was not accepting them for who they were. They're people who don't accept me for what I am. I'm not accepting that there are people who don't accept me for what I am. I want them to be different. Do you get what I mean? I wanted them to be different. I wanted them to think in a different way, to act in a different way, to do this and that in a different way. Who was not accepting who? Then I began to see that not accepting my parents was the cause of me experiencing so much suffering. If I accepted them as people who were limited beings, who of course want their children to be different than they are, then I wouldn't be so upset. I would see that it's natural. And seeing that it was my own self-centeredness that was creating the whole psychological mess, I then just accepted that they are like this. Then I could stop worrying about it all. Parents do what parents do. And one of the things they do is want their kids to be different, as all parents know. How many of you have kids? Don't you all want your kids to be a little different than how they are now? You have so many ways and suggestions to improve them. Of course, you're just doing what parents do. Why shouldn't our parents do what all parents do? When we accept this, then somehow there's so much ease in the mind. Think about the disadvantages of self-centeredness. Talking about the trouble children have with their parents and vice versa, I came across an article on the website of the American Psychological Association that claimed that teenagers from well-off families may be more self-centered and depressed than ever before. The article, titled The Price of Affluence, was written by Amy Novotny. It starts off mentioning research by psychologist Dr. Sonia Luther of Columbia University's Teachers College that shows that many of the unhappiest teens have passed with honors at their school and plan to go to prestigious universities. The research discovered that adolescents from suburban homes with an average family income of $120,000 reported higher rates of depression, anxiety and substance abuse than any other socioeconomic group of young Americans. Dr. Luther, who also studied mental health among low-income children, concluded, Families living in poverty face enormous challenges, but we can't assume that things are serene at the other end. The article goes on, Privileged teens often have their own obstacles to overcome. Some say these problems may be due to an increasingly narcissistic society, as is evidenced 
by fame-hungry reality TV stars and solipsistic websites. Plus, says Harvard University's Dr. Dan Kindlin, families have shrunk and kids are now seen as more precious. It was kind of hard to think that the world revolved around you when you had eight brothers and sisters, says Kindlin, author of Too Much of a Good Thing, Raising Children in an Indulgent Age. The article points out that another explanation may be that parents emphasize grades and performance too much, as opposed to a child's personal character. It quotes San Francisco clinical psychologist Dr. Madeleine Levine, author of The Price of Privilege, How Parental Pressure and Material Advantage Are Creating a Generation of Disconnected and Unhappy Kids, as saying, My experience with upper-middle-class moms is that they are worried sick about their kids. The article goes on to say that when Dr. Levine first began lecturing to parents about child-rearing, she titled her talk, Parenting the Average Child, but couldn't get much of an audience. Why? Because, Dr. Levine postulated, no parent thought their child was average. But parents aren't the only ones insisting their children are special, continues the article. Their kids believe it as well, according to research by San Diego State University psychology professor Dr. Jean M. Twang. She analyzed the narcissistic personality inventory scores of 16,475 American college students between 1979 and 2006 and found that one out of four students in recent generations show elevated rates of narcissism. In 1985, that number was only one in seven. Not that traits associated with narcissism are all bad. Dr. Robert Horton, a psychology professor at Warbush College in Crawfordsville, Indiana, points out that some, like authority and self-sufficiently, can be healthy. But, he says, too much self-absorption often leads to interpersonal strife. And Dr. Twang quotes research that shows narcissists tend to be defensive, do not forgive easily, and have trouble committing to romantic relationships and holding on to friendships. In other words, their egos can get in the way of true happiness. Narcissism is correlated with so many negative outcomes, she says, yet it seems to be something that is now relatively accepted in our culture. The cult of the celebrity, such a feature of our Western culture, may make the situation even worse. The article draws on research done in 2006 by Dr. Drew Pinsky, a radio host and psychiatry professor at the University of Southern California, together with psychologist Dr. Mark Young, to measure celebrities' narcissism levels. 200 well-known actors, musicians and comedians were involved in the research, which showed, surprise, surprise, that celebrities were significantly more narcissistic than the average person. The article goes on to quote psychologist Dr. Susan E. Lynn, Associate Director of the Media Center at the Judge Baker Children's Center at Harvard University. She fears that today's fascination with wealthy celebrities and reality shows, such as MTV's My Super Sweet 16, where a teen plans a million-dollar birthday party, contribute to normalizing this type of behavior. Kids immersed in this kind of media glitz feel unfulfilled or even like failures. She says... The combination of ubiquitous and sophisticated media and technology and unfettered commercialism is just a disaster for kids. A constant barrage of images of wealth and narcissism promote unhealthy values and false expectations of what life should be like. 
but we'll have to leave the discussion there until next time, for, as it always does, time has run out. Thanks for joining the program today, but before we leave, let's remember to dedicate all the positive potential we've accumulated today to the enlightenment of all living beings. I hope you'll be with us at the same time next week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.